Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good afternoon. Um, we're going to get started. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of the event. Dr. Larry D. Ferrero is the 2017 Pulitzer finalist for history for his book, Brothers at Arms, American Independence and the Men of France and Spain Who Saved It. He received his PhD in the history of science and technology from Imperial College London. He teaches history and engineering at George Mason University in Virginia and the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. He has served for over 35 years in the US Navy U.S. Coast Guard and Department of Defense, and was an exchange engineer in the French Navy. He lives with his wife and their sons in Virginia. Please help me in welcoming our guest. Thank you. Let's make sure this works. Hey. By early 1776, America was fighting the British for, in, for independence. But that war was being fought without America having a navy, artillery, or even gunpowder. Only France and Spain, who were the historical enemies of Britain, had both the motivation and the military strength and naval strength to defeat the British. We needed their alliance. But they would only ally with us if they saw America not as uh, a territory fighting a civil war, but rather as an independent nation, a sovereign nation, fighting uh, against Britain. And that was the only way that they would be able to ally with us as a sovereign nation. You can see what John Adams had to say about that fact. Foreign powers could not be expected to acknowledge us until we had acknowledged ourselves as an independent nation. And during the debates uh, over the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson himself said, a Declaration of Independence alone could allow European powers to treat with us. This is important because the Declaration of Independence was not written for George III. He'd already gotten the memo. Back in October of 1775, he'd said before Parliament that the Americans were fighting in a war aimed at gaining our independence, and we knew that he knew. So we didn't need to write a declaration to tell him. We also didn't write a declaration for ourselves, for the simple reason that it was the American people who sent their representatives to Philadelphia to um, declare independence in the first place. Prior to this, no other nation had ever written a formal declaration stating that it was independent. You wanted to be independent from your mother country, you fought a war, you, you won, you were independent. There was only one reason to have a formal document to go through all that trouble. It was an engraved invitation asking France and Spain 
to fight alongside the United States. And that's why I say that the Declaration of Independence was not simply that, but also a declaration that we depend on France and uh, Spain as well. We knew that France and Spain were interested in uh, fighting Great Britain because we knew they want their rematch. Because they came out very badly in the Seven Years' War, which had begun in 1754 and ended in 1763, with France losing Canada, Spain losing Florida, and a lot more besides that. Now, France and Spain by this point were already closely aligned by both family and military ties. It was called the Bourbon Family Compact because both the kings of France and Spain were descended from Louis XIV. And both of them wanted revenge. That was actually the word in the correspondence, revanche, um, that they uh, sought against Britain. They didn't want the same things. France was looking to regain its position in the balance of power in Europe. Spain was looking for more concrete gains. It wanted to regain Gibraltar. It was always about Gibraltar. It also wanted to drive the British out of Florida and retake the entire Gulf of Mexico so that it was once more a Spanish lake. So both nations were spoiling for a fight. And both nations knew that they could use the American Revolution, which they foresaw long before we did, as a tool for levering, leveraging um, Britain out of the game. You can see this quote by the French foreign minister, the Duc de Choiseul. Only the future American Revolution will consign England to a state of weakness. He said that eight years before we even knew we were ready to rebel. So he, he knew that they, that they, France and Spain together, could make use of a future American Revolution as part of their fight against Britain. How did they know this? Well, they were sending spies and observers to the colonies to take the pulse of, uh, of, the, of the colonists. People like Baron de Calve, who later would fight in the revolution. Well, they came back and they reported that certainly the Americans were <coughs> preparing to rebel against Britain, but they didn't think it was going to happen anytime soon. And in fact, it wouldn't happen for another eight years. Now, when the fighting began in 1775, uh, the British Army was being supplied with gun factories that could turn out hundreds of thousands of guns per year. The Americans had a few hundred to a few thousand gunsmiths scattered all around the colonies. And each of those could produce maybe one gun per month. So we needed, at first, weapons from France and Spain. And they provided them. Now, they gave arms to the insurgents, that's what they called us, using merchants like Diego Carrocchi <coughs> and Pierre Caron Beaumarchais to disguise the source. It, it would look like the arms were coming in from private dealers when in fact they were being financed <coughs> and sent by the governments in order to fool Britain because they were not ready to engage in out-and-out -out war at this point. Now, of course, the British were not fooled. Ultimately, 90% of all the guns that were used in this conflict came from overseas, as well as 30 billion, with a B, dollars equivalent in aid, came from overseas. <coughs> now, Beaumarchais was working with Silas Dean 
he was the American envoy to Paris, and he was negotiating the contract for these arms even before the news of the Declaration of Independence came to British shores. I mean, to sorry, to European shores. And by the time the contract was finalized, five ships under Beaumarchais were freighted with 20,000 muskets, hundreds of cannon, many tons of gunpowder. And they were carried across the Atlantic just in time to furnish American troops who were fighting a rear guard action against the British from Canada all the way south along the Hudson Valley. Now, the goal of the British was to march through the Hudson Valley, divide the colonies into two parts, New England on one side, the rest of the colonies on the other, and then um, begin to destroy in detail the rest of the colonies. So stopping the march of Burgoyne was critical. Up until the Battle of Saratoga, the Americans simply did not have the arms to do that. When these Beaumarchais muskets and cannon and gunpowder started to arrive on American shores, it was enough to supply the militia and the Continental Army so that they could make a stand against Burgoyne at Saratoga, and they did. And they defeated Burgoyne and actually captured his entire army. And that rocked the British back on their heels, and it completely changed their campaign strategy. So it was those French arms that really did turn the tide, and uh, Caleb Stark, who fought at the battle and knew what he was talking about, said it this way, unless these Beaumarchais arms had been thus timely furnished to the Americans, Burgoyne would have made an easy march to Albany. Now meanwhile, um, there were French, primarily, and other European volunteers who were coming to the United States to fight. They came to fight the British. The British was the common enemy. That's where the British were. They came to fight the British. But along the way, they started to make the American cause their own. And actually, George Washington came to depend upon these immigrants who got the job done, which, if you've seen the musical Hamilton, is one of the best lines from the entire musical. For example, Louis Lebeck Duporte was Washington's chief engineer. And he became uh, the, um, the person who Washington leaned upon, not only for strategic advice, but also to plan fortifications and sieges, including Valley Forge and, of course, Yorktown. Steuben put together a training plan, originally at Valley Forge and later um, across other parts of the Continental Army, that transformed that army from what was really a ragtag group of militia into a professional fighting force that could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British Army. And Lafayette, the best known, uh, eventually commanded troops independently in the Southern Theater. And he was able to keep Cornwallis, who was operating in the South, from coming very far north and pursued him all the way across Virginia into Yorktown. Now, initially, the Americans did not trust these French and other European soldiers who were coming over in droves to volunteer. Remember, it wasn't all that long before that we were fighting in what we called the French and Indian War. That was the Seven Years' War. The French and Indians, in the view of the uh, British colonists, i.e. the Americans, were the enemy. Now, suddenly, there are allies. 
Hmm, that's a tough one to swallow. You can see what Nathaniel Green said in May 1777. He called the French volunteers so many spies in our camp. Well, the Battle of Brandywine changed all that. If you remember, uh, the Battle of Brandywine was um, the British attempt to, uh, and successful, to leave New York in, in part, it was still under British occupation, and march on the capital, Philadelphia, to capture it. Washington had no choice but to make a stand, and he did so at the Creek at Brandywine. But he had very little to, um, to put into that battle. He threw everything he had into it, including all of these volunteers. And they showed themselves um, quite admirably in the battle. For example, uh, the Polish officer, Pulaski, led a cavalry charge that saved some of the Continental Army in retreat. Fleury, who was a French engineer, was commended for a particular bravery. And in fact, today, the US Army Corps of Engineers, which traces some of its heritage to Fleury and Duporte, uh, now has the Fleury Medal, which is awarded annually for courage and boldness. And Lafayette, that was, this was his first engagement. And while he was leading an infantry charge, he was wounded. He managed to escape back to uh, uh, friendly lines. And Washington commanded his doctors to treat him as if he were my own son. And the press, you can see, thought quite highly of the French officers who were in action, showed so much bravery, and in general, behaved extremely well. And this really turned the tide of, the, of American sentiment <coughs> to the French volunteers. First, that mistrust turned to acceptance. And over the course of months and then years, it turned into reliance. And in fact, Nathaniel Green, who had said of the French, so many spies in our camp, came to rely on Steuben and Lafayette during his southern campaign. Now, back at Versailles, the French foreign minister, the Comte de Vergennes, was the single most important character in this entire affair. He, and he alone, made almost all of the key decisions concerning this alliance, whether between the United States and France, or France and Spain. Now, he was quite practical. He had a France-first attitude towards this alliance. His goal was quite simple. He wanted to weaken Britain sufficiently so that the balance of power in Europe was tilted back in France's favor. He already knew, long before the Battle of Saratoga, that the Americans uh, were not winning. They were losing, battle after battle. And yet, France was already committed to this war. Now, the problem was, if Britain won, and it was obvious that they were going to win no matter how many arms, no matter how much gunpowder the French were supplying, the British would reconstitute their empire on the North American continent. And that would create an existential threat to the French colonies in the Caribbean, the plantation, uh, sugar plantations, or the sugar colonies, as they're often called, were the greatest source of income for the French, and by the way, for the British. That really was where the money was. Not in North America, but in the Caribbean. Vergen knew that unless France was directly allied with the United States and fought directly alongside the Americans, the British would win, and he could not allow that. So he knew he had to create an alliance. 
He was just waiting for the pretext to make that alliance, and the battle at Saratoga gave him the pretext of the decision he already made. So when you read in your history books that the Battle of Saratoga convinced the French to ally with the Americans, it's more balderdash than it is truth. It simply gave the French foreign minister the excuse he needed to take the decision he'd already made. Now, when that treaty of alliance was signed in early 1778 between the French and the Americans, that brought France into the war against Britain. And one of the most important things that happened was the French Navy came to the shores of America and that knocked the British back on their heels once again. Because up until this point, Britain had had free reign of the seas. It was able to transport troops from one theater of war to the other, supplies from England across the Atlantic. Now they had the French Navy to contend with. So they no longer could operate freely. And in fact, one of the first things that they had to do was evacuate the troops which had just occupied Philadelphia nine months earlier. Evacuate them back to New York City because they could not risk being blockaded uh, by the French Navy. Now at this point, in 1778, Spain was allied with France, but Spain could not risk going to war with England yet. The reason it could not risk going to war was that it still had a treasure fleet at sea carrying the equivalent of 50 billion, with a B, dollars in silver from Peru. Now, it turned out that would become the, that would be the last great treasure fleet which ever sailed from Peru. But while that fleet was at sea, France, sorry, Spain could not risk having that fleet uh, attacked by the British. So it waited until the fleet was safely back in Spain before it could take the decision to go to war with Britain alongside France. The Conde de Florida Blanca was Vergen's counterpart, and he also was of the Spain first mindset. He had a very specific goal. That was uh, recover Gibraltar, it's always Gibraltar, drive the British from the Gulf of Mexico. Now, if he could achieve those war aims and not go to war, he would do it. Any rational, reasonable leader of state will achieve his nation's or her nation's ends by um, non-military means. So, while France and Britain were still fighting and Spain was out of it, Spain offered Britain to mediate between France and uh, mediate with France, so they would work on a treaty uh, as the mediator. They would Spain would not go to war with Britain alongside France, so they would stay out of it, provided. Britain give up Gibraltar. That was the condition. And Britain refused. They would not give up Gibraltar. Now when you look on the map, of course, Gibraltar is the gateway to the Mediterranean. If you're coming from the Atlantic or the gateway to the Atlantic, if you're coming from the Mediterranean, they considered it a strategic uh, and tactical uh, stronghold, choke point, whatever you want to call it. They would not give up Gibraltar. Spain was not going to get what it wanted so it decided once its fleet was home, 
that it would go to war against Britain. And that sealed the fate of the British. Because by itself, the French Navy could not defeat Britain. By itself, the Spanish Navy could not defeat Britain. Keep in mind, there was no real continental navy. Together, the Spanish and the French navies overwhelmed and outnumbered the British. 124 ships of the line, those are the big ships that fought battles, between those two navies compared with Britain's 95 ships. The War of American Independence was always going to be a naval war, always. If you were fighting Britain, and it was the 18th century, it was going to be a naval war. Britannia rules the waves, remember? Britannia had an okay army, but its navy was second to none. But those two nations allied could overwhelm the British, and that's what they did. And it is no exaggeration to say that Britain gave up all of the United States for that pile of rocks, as Florida Blanca called it, called Gibraltar. Britain was overwhelmed because not only did it have to keep its uh, forces working in North America, it also now had to protect England itself from the threat of invasion by France and Spain. It had to protect Gibraltar. It had to protect its sovereign territories in the Caribbean. Remember, that's where the money was. It had to protect its colonies all the way from South Africa to India. It was spread all over the world, and it was simply overwhelmed. All of this was happening in 1779 and 1780, which on the North American land side was pretty much the low point of the entire war. Lots of things were, were going on, defeats pretty much up and down the coast. Um, you can see what uh, Alexander Hamilton had to say about the state of the war at this point. If we are saved, France and Spain must save us. So he knew, just like the rest of the Americans knew, that the destiny of the war really lay not in the hands of the Americans, but in the hands of our uh, allies and partners. Well, after Spain declared war in 1779, the first thing that the French and the Spanish did was create an immense fleet of 150 ships and 30,000 troops to invade England. Now this was bigger even than the famous Spanish Armada of 1588. Now that plan, plan combined invasion was going to capture Portsmouth and Southampton, wreck or wreak havoc on the British economy, wreck it as well. And that would bring Britain to the bargaining table, to the peace table. They knew they could trade a lot of that for their war aims. And it was on its way to this potential defeat of Britain when the entire combined French and British fleet was waylaid by an outbreak of dysentery, which laid low, you can see, uh, 8,000 men. They actually had to strip the entire crew off several ships, just a man, um, one of the ships in the line. One of the first casualties to die from dysentery was the son of the French admiral. And that took the wind out of his sails. I mean, more, you know, uh, uh, figuratively as well as uh, uh, literally because the wind was also uh, counter to their line of approach. Now, the Spanish admiral, Luis de Cordoba, 
um, was unable to carry out this invasion, you can see that these ships were more like hospitals than they were ships of war, and the entire invasion just fizzled out. Now, we know about this only because there was a little side exercise that happened at that time. Just as the French and the Spanish fleet was setting sail, the French minister of the Navy asked a relatively unknown captain of the uh, Continental Navy, John Paul Jones, if he would lead a small fleet or flotilla around the British Isles, attack a few convoys, um, maybe draw the British uh, away from the main invasion fleet. And of course, no British admiral was, was foolish enough to follow John Paul Jones. Well, what happened was Jones happened to cross a convoy coming back through the Baltic, through the North Sea, carrying timber. And it was guarded uh, or escorted by two frigates. So the two frigates engaged Jones to protect the convoy. Um, Jones engaged the frigates. Uh, Serapis was the name of the British frigate. The uh, Jones's ship was a converted merchant ship, which he renamed Bonham Richard. And the two fought it out. And eventually, they uh, grappled side by side. Bonham Richard sank, but Jones was able to grapple and capture Serapis. The convoy made it back home safely. The captain of Serapis did exactly what he was supposed to do, save the convoy and sacrifice himself. He was knighted for this, by the way, because he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, none of the British uh, press really took notice of this. It wasn't a big deal. This kind of thing happened all the time. But the American press was full of, of front page after front page news of this small skirmish which now was blown out of proportion because it really did stand in for the David and Goliath battle that was the United States versus England. It was a moral shot in the arm at a time when the Americans desperately needed it. Now back in New Orleans, which was Spanish territory, Bernardo de Galvez was the governor of Spanish Louisiana, and he'd already been supplying the American troops who were fighting in the Western theater up the Mississippi all the way to Detroit. Um, he was giving them arms, he was giving them powder, medicine. Up until 1779, when Spain declared war on Britain, and at that point, as soon as he got word, he launched lightning raids against the British outposts, which were in Mobile, Natchez, and Baton Rouge, and captured them. His goal was to get to Pensacola, because Pensacola was the capital of British West Florida, and that was the key to the Gulf of Mexico, which is what the Spanish wanted. But he had several setbacks, including a, a series of devastating hurricanes, which turned out to wreck the British fleet in the Caribbean more so than it did the Spanish and the French fleet. So in 1781, he was able to command a Spanish-French force, a joint fleet, um, which captured Pensacola and made uh, the British leave West Florida. Well, that meant that the Gulf of Mexico was now in Spanish hands, that Britain was no longer a problem, and that happened just as a new French fleet was coming over from France to protect the Caribbean, because, of course, that's where the money was, that's where the power was. Now, this was under the Comte de Grasse, the French fleet, and while he was there, he had orders from the Minister of the Navy that during the hurricane season in the Caribbean, September through November, he could detach himself from the Caribbean and go north to help 
the French forces, which had already arrived under uh, Rochambeau, and Washington together, but only for a short period, and then he'd have to come back to defend the Caribbean. So he was going to do that, and he was going to leave some of his ships in the Caribbean, and the Spanish told him, um, now that the British are no longer a threat, you can take your entire fleet north for that period, we'll guard your colonies, which the Spanish did. They detached some of their Spanish ships to guard the French colonies, which allowed the Comte de Grasse to take his entire fleet north. And he decided, even though George Washington wanted to attack New York, he decided that the French and the Americans should make their stand in the Chesapeake, because that offered a much better chance of victory. And so when he sent his news back up to Washington and Rochambeau that um, he was going to Chesapeake, Washington and Rochambeau had to race south from New York on a force march in the middle of summer um, to meet him, de Grasse, in the Chesapeake area, surround the British, which turned out to be under Cornwallis. They didn't know this quite at the time yet. Now, the Comte de Grasse, by the way, was a um, fighting admiral. His sailors loved him. And they said of him that the Comte de Grasse stands six foot four and six foot five on days of battle. <coughs> and, oh, um, yes, in case you're, since you asked, yes, he was one of the uh, ancestors of the rock star astrophysicist. Neil deGrasse Tyson. The Comte de Grasse made it to the Chesapeake in September. When uh, Washington came aboard his flagship, the Ville de Paris, the Comte de Grasse, who stood two inches taller than Washington, actually did embrace him and say, Mon petit général, my little, my little general. Which is one of those stories that you think is fabricated and yet actually happened. Um, de Grasse began to offload troops, guns, ammunition, um, to start carrying out the land siege when the British fleet, which they later found out was under Thomas Graves, appeared off of the Chesapeake. And uh, de Grasse didn't even hesitate. He cast anchor. He literally chopped the lines to the anchor, put buoys on them so they could find them later. Um, sailed out of the Chesapeake to meet Graves, and the outcome of that battle would determine who controlled the Chesapeake. All de Grasse needed to do was keep Graves away from the mouth, where Graves would have to defeat in, in detail the uh, fleet of de Grasse. And de Grasse was able to keep Graves away, achieve his strategic victory without having to uh, battle it out to the death. And then once Graves was sufficiently far away, was able to sortie back into, or not sortie, but return back into the Chesapeake and continue with the operations of the siege. Now that the entire Chesapeake was blockaded, the British could not get in, could not believe Cornwallis, nor could they resupply it. Cornwallis's fate was sealed. And the story of Yorktown is pretty well known. Um, the, uh, the forced march by Rochambeau and Washington um, came uh, uh, down through the summer. By September, they were in the region. By October 9th, 1781, they began the siege. And the siege guns were blasting, blasted away for about five days while the siege lines advanced 
but it was the French officers who did, directed those siege uh, lines, and the French officers who directed most of the gunfire. Most of the cannon were siege cannon from the French. And the French also suffered about twice the number of casualties as did the Americans. Now once um, the French and the American troops had captured redoubts 9 and 10 outside of Yorktown, uh, the situation for Cornwallis was untenable. And when Cornwallis' second-in-command, the Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, um, came out to offer the surrender, um, he walked out knowing that it was a French victory. Britain had, defeat, had been defeated by the French before. This was another French victory, so he offered his sword to Rochambeau. And Rochambeau knew it was a French victory, but he also knew that the moment belonged to Washington. By his own orders, he was under the command of Washington. He didn't even say a word from the one account, uh, eyewitness account we have of this. And he just, without saying a word, gestured to Washington. So O'Hara turned to Washington. Washington was not going to take the surrender of somebody else's second-in-command. He gestured to his own second-in-command. That's uh, Benjamin Lincoln, who's uh, on the horseback there. And with that uh, acceptance of the surrender, the Battle of Yorktown was over. That was not the end of the war. Because fully understood, A, that it is not in the English character to give up so easily. Cornwallis only lost 8,000 men. They still had 20,000 men in North America, and they could count on tens of thousands more from the Caribbean. So the situation in North America was not lost. The problem was that by 1781, Britain was alone fighting five separate nation states without an ally to its name. It was fighting the United States, France, Spain. It also had dragged the Dutch Republic into the war and the Kingdom of Mysore in India, which was allied with France. So it was fighting all across the globe. And you can see that, as uh, I said earlier, the war became a naval war. And this is where most of the fighting took place. The greatest siege of the War of American Independence was not Yorktown. It was the Siege of Gibraltar. That was a vicious fight. It spanned four years. It occupied 60,000 Spanish troops alone. And, well, that is a mushroom cloud you can see rising over the rock of Gibraltar. That's how fierce the fighting was. So, with all of these nations fighting in all of these regions, the Anglo-Dutch War, in the North Sea and in the Caribbean, the Mysore War in India, the capture of Menorca from the British by the French and the Spanish, the siege of Gibraltar, plus many other battles beside, um, Britain was simply overwhelmed. In fact, the very last battle of the War of American Independence was the Battle of Kalwar in India, which occurred six months after the preliminary peace treaty was signed. The Peace of 1783 ended eight years of war. And during that time, over 200,000 French and Spanish soldiers and sailors fought in that war, compared with an estimated 250,000 Americans to 380,000 Americans. In other words, 
they were as invested in this war as we were. America could never have won the war without France, and France never would have fought the war without Spain. So I, what, what I hope all of you take away is this. The United States did not achieve independence by itself. It was, in fact, born as the centerpiece of an international co coalition, which together worked to defeat a common adversary. And if you think about it, it's America's role today as the centerpiece for international efforts for common good that still continues to define us as the indispensable nation. Thank you. Let me also make a plug for this book. Now, my book is out there, and you should definitely buy that first. But I helped to edit this book, published under the Smithsonian Press last year, which is called The American Revolution and World War. And I'm very proud of this book because we managed to get um, authors from all the nations which fought in the war. India, France, Spain, the Dutch Republic, plus views from many, uh, and, and Britain, plus views from many other parts of the conflict which are generally not reported. And each of them wrote about what their nation was, was doing and why it participated in the war. And you see a very common theme. We didn't tell them what to do. But the common theme that emerges was each nation was fighting in this war because it had its own national purpose. But above all, this was a, um, this was a naval conflict across the globe. And it was, it was empire more than it was liberty of the, and freedom of the United States that drove the whole conflict. So that I found um, quite enlightening. And it gives you a whole different view on what the War of American Independence is, it marks the fact that we began our existence as a part of a global empire. And that's where we are today. And if, I use the word empire in a uh, more of a trade and Pacific sense than you know, colonial sense. But um, the idea that we are part of a larger pattern of global connections, and we started that. So with that, I think we have time for questions. Um, so I saw it over here first, then there, then there. You mentioned the French had hoped to be repaid in tobacco. Uh, after the French Revolution, John Adams said, actually it's a different government, we don't own the, the French anything. Did the French get repaid at all? And what happened to the money we owed to, the, to Spain? So um, I'll give a little background. One of the things that was happening was um, Beaumarchais and others who were um, supplying money to the Americans um, expected that there would be a trade in tobacco, which we supplied um, some of the best in the world for uh, repayment of arms and gunpowder. Um, it turned out that because of British blockades and many other reasons, um, a lot of that ship, those shipments never made it. Uh, at the end of the war, uh, we owed the French government quite a bit of money in addition to independent merchants. So we had a whole host of debts. And finally, in um, all the state debts were consolidated into one federal debt when we created the, um, the federal government in 1789. Um, at that point, the federal government was faced with a dilemma. How do we pay the French government? Um, there were other lawsuits for, for example, Beaumarchais, 
uh, which were settled in courts and eventually did, uh, were settled I think it was, uh, with his descendants in the 1830s for pennies on the dollar. What the Americans did was eventually sell their debt through the, um, I'm pretty sure through the Bering Bank, to uh, private holders, so sold off the debt, um, which the, the French would then um, get from these private bankers. So that's essentially what we did. We sold our debt. Uh, for the Spanish, there was eventually an agreement that allowed us to, uh, as part of one of the treaties that we uh, made in the 1790s, I, I, might, I, I, I write books so I can immediately forget the details, so I can go look it up. But we eventually did um, come to an agreement, again, to pay off the Spanish debt, which was much lower, but uh, again, for pennies on the dollar. So I hope that answers your yeah, so a question there, and then over here. Sure. Uh, how did the uh, the map of the Western Hemisphere change uh, for the French and the Spanish uh, because of negotiations as before? Uh, so we're talking the North American continent. Um, this treaty of there were actually two treaties in 1783. The one between um, France and Britain, Spain and Britain, the Dutch Republic and Britain were signed at Versailles. The one between America and Britain was signed in Paris. They were signed on the same day. The American treaty was signed in the morning. The other treaties were signed in the afternoon. And the the map would change after this, but it um, made the line of control uh, between the Americans and the Spanish, the Mississippi. It left kind of in flux where the line at Florida was. There was really a lot of debate as to whether the um, the border with these, the Spanish colonies, because that's they, they took over the, uh, both Floridas, East and West Florida from Britain, um, there was some debate as to where that line would be. Um, and for some time, the Spanish and the Americans, even after the treaty, were debating whether the Americans would have navigation rights over the Mississippi or not. Um, there were a few other provisions. Um, France was already out of North America and it had already retained two islands, um, uh, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, which they still have, off of Canada. Um, there were uh, debates over whether the British could retain logging rights in what is today the Honduras, which <coughs> they were able to, but they didn't have any territory there. Um, there were a lot of back and forth uh, discussions about fishing rights. Um, well, to me, so I, I, I hope that answered the question that you're asking. But the interesting thing to me was many of the, uh, a lot of the territory that was between um, the more populated areas of the East Coast and the Spanish control at the Mississippi were still being debated for years afterwards. And there were a few people, including George Rogers Clark, um, and, uh, who were trying to make use of this flux <coughs> to uh, get the Spanish to think about creating a buffer state in, in there so that the, uh, the Spanish and the Americans wouldn't uh, go head to head. And the Spanish really didn't want to be part of some of these dealings. There was, a, there was another fellow named uh, Willing who also was, was part of this dealing. And that's one reason why even today you see on the map uh, towns like New Madrid, New Madrid, um, and other towns with Spanish names uh, through 
know, areas like Missouri and, and so on, because Spain still was trying to exact some control. And all of that finally was resolved, well, most of it was resolved with um, the Pickney Treaties of 1790-something, and then uh, eventually um, there was another set of treaties after the War of 1812 where the United States finally bought the Floridas, the two Floridas. So or by that time it was single Florida. So I hope that answered the, the question. So then you, you then gentlemen next question. You mentioned that um, France's strategy motive was economic, and yet I read other. No, I said exactly the opposite. Oh, I thought you meant about protecting its sugar colonies in the Caribbean. Um, that was two di okay. Two different things. Yes, the reason that that France decided to go to war in the first place with Britain was because it wanted to knock Britain back on its heels and knock it down uh, so that it uh, would re so France would reoccupy its position of power in Europe. It could control European affairs. After the Seven Years' War, Britain was on top of the world. They had defeated all the enemies. They were really the powerhouse. And France did not see Britain as the natural um, leader of Europe. So it had political, not economic, objectives to fight Britain in the first place. The problem was, once it was involved in the war, it was so much enmeshed that if it suddenly withdrew and Britain filled the vacuum that they left, Britain would then attack the French sovereignty in the Caribbean. And it wasn't just economic, it was really the, 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 the economic base of the French economy was in the Caribbean, just as it was for the British economy. So it wasn't just money, it was quite literally you know, having the entire foundation being pulled out from under it. So, so but you, you still had a question, so I... Well, I did, and it has to do with things that I've read. Some stories that France's involvement in the revolution led to its own revolution because of all the money that was spent in our war. And so I looked at that, and um, fortunately I was um, able to find uh, people who are economic historians who looked at this in a lot more detail than I ever could. And here was the conclusion that they came to that I agree with. France had already fought and gone into enormous debt during the Seven Years' War, so did Britain. But after the Seven Years' War, it reigned in its fiscal ill irresponsibility it was able to repay the debt. And by the time the American Revolutionary War began, it had pretty much cleared the war debt. At the end of the Revolutionary War, War of American Independence, it also had taken on a huge amount of debt. So did Britain. But it did not um, adopt the same financial practices it had done 10 years earlier. So it was really uh, irresponsibly funding its debt through borrowing, and it was borrowing at a much higher rate than the British. The British, because they had a separate bank, the Bank of England was a, a sovereign bank that was not under the, the government's control. Plus, Britain's finances were transparent, so they couldn't you know, hold uh, um, things in reserve and, and, and secret. Everybody had to see. France's accounting was, was opaque, but one time 
that the Minister of Finance published a annual report, which I think was 1780 or 1781. Within a year, he was fired. So um, they continued to hide all their losses. By 1787, 1788, the French economy was doing fine, but the French government was bankrupt again. So the war debt did not help, but they had a way to get out of it. They, they could have done things that the British had done. For example, every time the British government ran a surplus, they would take the surplus and pay down the debt. If the French government ever ran a surplus, they would use the surplus for some pet project. So there's lots of things that could have happened and did not. And that, and that was fiscal irresponsibility, plus the fact that the government was incapable of taxing the people who had the money. Wait, um, that that also went to it. So I hope that answers your question. That answered my question. Sir. The, uh, I remember the timeline, uh, Napoleon got the uh, Louisiana Purchase from the, from the Spanish, but I can't remember what it was, 99, uh, 1800, I can't remember the year. I think it was 1800, but he... he uh, but they, they sold it to... He had it for 20 minutes and then he sold it. Yeah. Because um, he was I, trying to finance his, his uh, invasion of Britain. I can't remember. I've forgotten that the British actually had Florida for a while. Is, is there any... How long was that? What, is there any 1763 to 1783. 20 years. And uh, they got it because um, in the piece of, of the Treaty of, of Paris, which was the treaty that ended the Seven Years' War, um, they needed some recompense for uh, not taking Cuba, because they'd already invaded and taken Cuba, and Spain wanted Cuba, because Cuba was the crown jewel. That's where their big uh, arsenal was, and so on. So they were either going to get Puerto Rico or Florida, and Spain did not want to give up Puerto Rico, so they, they, they gave up Florida. Florida was sand and mosquitoes primarily, according to written accounts at the time. And Britain, Britain got it, and they were not happy, but that's what they got. So uh, it was, number one, um, contiguous with the other states. That's kind of the interesting. Why didn't Florida join with the other 13 colonies? Well, because they'd just been created. And most of the people who lived in Florida were Spanish. Well, the Spanish left. Well, I didn't say Augustine. I mean, it, it, that was the first permanent. Right. But the Spanish had, had upsticked and upped sticks and left almost entirely, fully occupied by the British. And the British had only been there uh, the, the maybe uh, 10 years when all of a sudden the rest of the colonies who'd been there for some of them, you know, 150 almost you know, suddenly decided to rebel. So you had all these new British people living in Florida, and they, they still felt themselves British. They didn't want to join the rest of the, the colonies. So the Spanish had, had um, completely evacuated all of their um, territory, or I'm pretty sure almost all of their territories, when the, when the British moved in. Also, uh, a quick thing. I was in Savannah a couple years ago, and um, an indication of, of you know, Spanish involvement, there's a, there's a monument downtown near the water in Savannah of um, Haitian troops. Those are French. That are French, obviously, yes, that's French nation. The chasseurs uh, volontaires of the saint There's a statue and a monument to, to their uh, help in uh, season or defending yes. Savannah. Yes, I, I was just there a few weeks ago. I was very happy to see it. Sir? Uh, 
Yeah, this is interesting. It's uh, actually revolutionary. It's not exactly what a school of children were taught. And, and my hope is that it will change. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I think it's already started. Uh, that the American Revolution was uh, won by monarchs. I wonder, over time, uh, has there been, I mean, it's very natural to emphasize your own participation and your own vote. I, I can understand that. But has there been anything somewhat more conspirational or deliberate to uh, de-emphasize the external aspects of this event for rather obvious and understandable reasons? Is, why was Are France you uncovering some some secret that but the rest of the world doesn't know? No, because uh, if you read the histories, um, it certainly appears none of there are some things that uh, are fairly new that I uh, talked about, but putting it all together is something that I have to say I never saw done the way I, I did it, and the. The reason why France and Spain and all these other nations were written out of the story, I cover in here. I, I have an essay at the end of writing the American Revolution and tracing how the historiography of the revolution, in other words, historians who were talking about the Revolutionary War from quite literally the last years of the war was when the first histories of the war were being written in 1782 and 1783 all the way till today. And I traced how it changes. And one of the most important things that I found is that, and you probably have already figured this one out, um, history is the continuation of politics by other means. So the history reflected the political demands of the time. And the most important change you saw was from the 1850s through the 1890s, when we were in a period of manifest destiny. And Probably some of you have heard the name George Bancroft. He was the most important American historian of the 19th century, who wrote, literally wrote the history. He wrote a 10-volume, The History of the United States. And Bancroft was very much a manifest destiny. We're supposed to occupy the lands from coast to coast. And he was particularly virulent against the Spanish, more so than the French, because the Spanish and their um, descendants, as it were, were standing in our way. You know, it was Spanish-held territory of Mexico and, and, and north that was standing in our westward, westward expansion. You had Spain to our south. So a lot of what he was writing um, not just wrote Spain out of the picture, but actually um, denounced the role of Spain as being more, um, uh, you know, not, not just being uh, not involved, but, but trying to stop the French from helping in the first place. And over time, you see how the, uh, the allies were being written out of the picture. To me, it's interesting that the very first volumes of uh, being written talked about the Kingdom of Mysore, talked about Spain, talked about all of these other alliances. And it's only in the latter part of the 20th century that you start to see works appear that re-examine uh, and really just recast again the focus that had been there at the beginning and was lost. So it's changing. 
It's changing because our politics are changing. We're starting to recognize that we aren't a nation simply that came from England and a couple of other counties. We're a nation that came from England and from other parts of Europe, and a huge portion of our nation came from south to north. The, as the Spanish will tell you, it was not, it, for many of the Europeans, they immigrated to the United States. For many of the Spanish, the United States immigrated over them. So our Spanish heritage is enormously important. And we're, begin, we're not just beginning, we are embracing it fully. So again, history is politics by other means. And I think we're, we are understanding who we are as a nation better now than we ever have. So I hope that answered your question. Sir. <clears throat> to what extent did the French try to uh, try to reinvigorate into British identity in French Canada, which they had only lost? Uh, they the did not want French Canada at all. Period. Full stop. George Washington. They. they it was. Uh, it was British. It never made very much money for the French in the first place. They spent more money trying to defend it. The uh, fortress of Louisbourg, which was the a maritime fortress was probably one of the biggest investments that France ever made overseas, and it was a complete failure. Um, Voltaire famously called Canada a few acres of snow. <laughs> and it was not producing any goods that were usable. You know, fur trade was never a profitable business. Um, the troops to keep Canada were never worthwhile. Um, Ultimately, it did not give them the position of power that they thought it would get in Europe. So when they gave it up, they gave it up for good. And when George Washington, after Yorktown, prodded Rochambeau and said, you know, Canada's up there, can we go get it? Rochambeau was under orders to say, no, we are not, we are not going on any adventures. We're not doing that. It's not part of my remit, um, and I'm not going to support that. France did not want territorial gains, and they made it very clear they were not after territorial gains. So I hope that answered that question. Yeah. Final questions? Yes. When you say that uh, a lot of the Caribbean economies were sort of, the Caribbean um, territories were the prime source of, was the biggest part of the, the economy, economy of the powers. Um, is, that, is it more correct to say that was the biggest source of revenue because it's easy to tax? When you talk about the domestic economy inside Britain, I mean, even today, the uh, balance of trade is usually a relatively small part of what is the larger economy. It's maybe more of a, you know, uh, economic historian kind of question. Um, but even today, when you have commodity-based economies, they're very much, they, they, they defend those resources more because they're easy to tax. And as you said before, one of the problems France had was taxing those with that printing. But it's very easy to tax uh, something that's an import that you know where it's coming from, and the crown owns the property. Uh, so is it more that it was a prime source of public revenue, uh, or that it, the economy as a whole? But I guess. Well, it was it was both because not only was were France and Britain and the others getting a lot of their foodstuffs, uh, sugar was a source of revenue for the crown, but also many of the plantations were privately owned, so they were um, taxed, which gave revenue to the crown, but also improved the economy, because the sugar was also exported, so it brought revenue into the country, but they also produced rice, uh, indigo, there's a few other 
crops that were produced in the, uh, in the Caribbean. So it really was, was both. Um, it is, a, it is a, uh, a question definitely worth looking into, and I'm probably going to go off and see if I can find a good economic historian that can divvy up the, the revenue that went to the, uh, each of the monarchies versus you know, was, it was privately owned. But uh, France, more so than, than Britain, had a very mercantilist prop, uh, policy. So uh, sometimes what went to the economy, what went to the crown, was not as easy to differentiate. Any final? So I, yes, sir. Uh, just as a final reminder, we are sitting in the Commodore Barry room. Yes, it was one of the. And as an Irishman, I want to remind the audience that we have a debt to Ireland, too. Yep. He was very instrumental. This was named Commodore Barry because the chairman of our board's wife is a descendant. Ah, okay. And I probably am, too. <laughs> yes, he was one of the uh, captains who actually um, fought in the war of, of, of commerce um, against the British. And uh, I don't remember uh, how much he was in the European theater or if he whether he primarily operated um, in the Caribbean theater, but uh, there were many. This plaque next to me will explain a little bit of that. He was involved in uh, internal. Is he considered the father of the Navy? Yeah, he is. He is considered the father of the Navy. I mean, well, obviously, it won after the Revolution. Yes. Wasn't well, also the Caribbean, didn't Is that where they made the rum or just the sugar? The sugar, and then um, there were rum distilleries there, too. Um, I don't know to what extent, but usually it's, it's less expensive to um, refine the sugar and ship it than uh, ship liquid. I thought there was a, 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 rum, a rum tobacco triangular uh, thing going on around the Atlantic. Pro uh, there probably is. I'll, I'll have to, I, I would have to go back and, and look at the specifics of what was built on where. What, what? That's what we were taught in school. Yeah, what I do remember is that um, yeah. <laughs> Washington did a, a pretty brisk trade uh, with the Caribbean um, in, uh, in whiskey. So uh, it was, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, but there were goods flowing back and forth um, really uh, across all of the colonies um, and even between the islands. When the, when the French were originally, when they you said they were dropping off um, muskets and, and cannon, what port were they using? Well, that particular one, the one Beaumarchais uh, used, were, were a combination. The primary one was Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Several of the ships came there. Other ships came into the Caribbean, offloaded in islands of the Caribbean. Uh, Saxon Eustatius, I think, was one of them. Um, uh, I believe that um, Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, was another. And then those arms were transshipped on smaller vessels to go up the coast. But they were using ports all up and down the coast. And, and uh, the Lafayette uh, voyage that uh, famously carried him the first time across was done in a ship that he had freighted with about 5,000 muskets, which landed uh, just north of uh, Georgia, uh, landed in Georgetown just north of Charleston, and then landed in Charleston. Lafayette came with muskets, which he then sold to the rebels, which is how he financed his whole operation. And by the way, uh, the crown, the French crown, knew that he was going. The whole bit about, I escaped, was, again, balderdash. 
because one of my friends went into the port records of, um, in, I think it was Bayonne or Bordeaux, where he, he left from. He found, you know, approbations, you know, from the, from the crown. So they knew where he was going. Sir, one last question. Um, what happened to a lot of these French officers during the French Revolution? We don't really hear much about them. Uh, if you're talking um, naval, many of them were guillotined. Um, naval officers were aristocrats for, you know, uh, many of them, um, including um, uh, Comte d'Estaing, who led the first expedition of the French, who was the highest ranking admiral in the Navy, was beheaded. Uh, many of the officers came back and they fought on the side of the crown against their enemies. Remember, they came, and we're talking here about Rochambeau's officers. Now, there were some volunteers who also fought on the side of the crown. Um, Lafayette was, was not a royalist, um, but neither was he a rebel. He was not you know, necessarily siding with um, all the, uh, the rebels because he actually he, he was actually imprisoned uh, after escaping in Austria for some years. Um, Rochambeau, for example, fought in the north of France against, um, I believe it was, um, I'm going to have to look up who he fought in, uh, in the north. Um, probably one of the German states, which, was, which were fighting um, the French. They saw their allegiance, and remember, they fought this war as part of the French crown, not as part of the American. You know, for the same reason that we, we go into another theater of war, we're fighting for ourselves. We didn't go into World War I or World War II um, to fight for the French or for the British. We fought because we were Americans and we saw an existential threat. So the same thing happened. Well, the last question that nobody has asked, is there, if there's no other question, is if Lafayette really isn't the most important person, why did he get all the glory? And the answer is he went on a grand tour of America and he died. And let me explain why. At the 50th anniversary of the revolution, he was invited to come to America. He took a grand tour, 1824 to 1825. Visited all the states, took, um, took steamboats, which new, and he became known as the hero of two worlds. And in fact, um, that cemented his reputation to the point when Pershing came in World War I, and if you haven't seen 1917, go see 1917, the movie, it takes place on April 6, 1917, the date that the United States entered the war. That's kind of an interesting little sideline that nobody on the front lines knew about. And uh, Pershing's chief of staff, Charles Stanton, said, Lafayette, we, were, we are here, as if that's the reason why we came in the first place. Well, in fact, I say that this cemented Lafayette's reputation because I did a study of um, all the mentions of Lafayette or Lafayette on both spellings in the English language. And you can see that while he was fighting in the United States, the number of mentions goes up, but not very much. There's uh, a time when he was in exile for eight years where a lot of British books mention him, and then the number of uh, mentions drop down. And then he comes to the United States in, for his grand tour, and the number of mentions goes up, and then he dies, and it skyrockets, and then levels off from there. So. In the words of the um, uh, agent who said of Elvis's death, great career move. <laughs> <laughs>
And with that, thank you. Okay.